coming soon on Beyond the Zero, the World Cup of Books. All your favourite books go head-to-head to, head to crown the ultimate winner. This epic tournament will be played on Instagram and Twitter. The top 32 seeds will be announced shortly. Stay tuned to Beyond the Zero for all the details, and as always, gamble responsibly. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 18 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Emmett Stinson. Emmett is an award-winning writer and critic. He's a senior lecturer of writing and literature at Deakin University in Geelong. Welcome to the show, Emmett. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in the US, you moved to Australia, and you completed your MA in Adelaide. What brought you out here to Australia? Yeah, look, it's um, I had been living in Washington, D.C. for almost a decade when I uh, then moved to Australia in 2004. Uh, and I'm, I moved for a lot of reasons, probably none of them very good or uh, very, uh, very sensible. Um, I think, you know, it's one of those, I, I did it in my mid 20s. And I think that's a time in life where you can, for a lot of people, you can kind of uproot yourself, make big changes. And there, there, there are relatively few consequences to that. Um, but um, look, a lot of it was that I'd been, uh, Washington became a very strange city to me after September 11th, it became a really paranoid um, city. And, uh, you know, pe- people associate rightly September 11th with uh, New York and with the Twin Towers there, but a plane did crash into the Pentagon. Also, I, you know, on, on the day I could see the big plumes of smoke from the, the house that I lived in in the city on 14th Street and we had rooftop access and the whole city shut down. People had to walk home from office buildings. I drove some friends um, through back streets to their, to their houses further out in the suburbs because I happened to live in the city and had a, had a car and knew, knew some, knew some non-trafficy routes, um, out and things like that. Um, but it just became a weird place. You had not only September 11th, but right after that, you had the sniper attacks in Washington, DC, where two men were shooting civilians in parking lots and gas stations. And, and that was in suburbs around DC. Um, you had, um, you had as well the anthrax attacks and actually i knew someone who was working in tom daschle's office when the anthrax letter got open and it was on cipro and all the whole thing after that um and um and then and then there was actually a big uptick in in violence in washington as well right after right after september 11th because uh the borders got much tighter they just started catching lots of stuff coming through um, and anecdotally, anyway, the idea was that um, my understanding uh, from ta- I had friends who worked in the Department of Justice at the time, again, because that's in D.C., they were saying they were catching more shipments of illegal drugs, which made the street price of drugs go up, which made people fight over territory. And so I was living in, in what is now an absolutely lovely suburb of Washington, D.C., called Columbia Heights. Um, but you know, in 2002, 2003, I think there were eight murders within six blocks of my house. And, you know, I walked home one night past a, a dead body in a shooting incident. And, you know, um, 
it, it just felt like a crazy place. I couldn't really participate in the paranoia that people had. A lot of people were very worried about, about you know, still about about terrorism, and that that just didn't seem like a likely a likely threat from my perspective. And I couldn't I couldn't really share in that particular worry. Um, it just felt like a good time to leave the city. That was sort of my view. And I, I wanted to go back. I wanted to study. I wanted to do an MA. I'd already lived in the UK briefly. Um, and I am, I am, I am mostly monolingual, uh, sadly. Um, and, um, I mean, I can read Spanish a bit, but my, my spoken Spanish is terrible. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I applied to programs in New Zealand and Australia and I ended up in Adelaide and I, um, in, a, in really a great, what I think was a very great MA program, especially at that time. At that time, it was a two-year program and you had to write a 60,000 word manuscript. So I got to write a full length uh, work, which was awesome. And I remember getting there and the first week I was there, I remember taking a a, uh, a bus, um, not not the tram that actually runs, but the, a bus to uh, Glenelg and walking out, which is not my favorite place in Adelaide, I should say nothing against Glenelg, but walking out on the, the pier and looking south and realize, realizing you could kind of go, you know, it was kind of nothing until Antarctica, you know, from, from that point. And it was, uh, it was an incredibly freeing moment. I felt, I felt really good. It was a very, it was a very strange moment, one I've never forgotten, but it, it, uh, yeah, I, 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 I felt very glad. I thought I would be in Australia for a year or two, but, um, I just, uh, I just, I, I loved it immediately, loved the people, loved the place, um, and, and stayed and never, never really thought about going home at all, to be honest. And you went to Adelaide and then you moved to places like Sydney and Newcastle. And now you're in you're living in Ballarat, but teaching in Geelong, which is west of Melbourne. Yes. What is your view of the literary scene in Australia after all these years living here? So yeah, I mean, look, um, the Australian literary scene is a is a very funny thing. So I, I lived in Adelaide for about two years, and then I moved to Melbourne. I lived in Melbourne for a very long time. Um, Melbourne is often seen as kind of the home of the literary scene in Australia, certainly of smaller publishers and kind of cultural publishing. Uh, it's been seen that way for a very long time. It's not just, there, there are great publishers in Sydney and Brisbane and other places. Uh, I'm not trying to take anything away from those other places, but, um, but Melbourne has all long held that reputation for 50 years. Um, I think one of the things that's really nice about the Australian literary scene, I'm going to begin by saying nice things about it because there are nice things to be said about it. You know, in the U S you're really aware of how peripheral literature is and that no one cares. You have things that, you know, are literary journals. And if you ask the average person, and it should also be true in Australia, you know, they'd say, what's a literary journal. They don't know what it is. They don't know what it does. Um, literary journals, generally speaking, you know, there are some counterexamples like McSweeney's or, um, you know, uh, Virginia Quarterly Review for a little while there um, before it kind of imploded. Um, and the Believer to some degree, you know, which is also obviously in trouble now. There have been a, a few exceptions, but in general, these magazines don't have much um, penetration into the broader culture. Well, in Australia, actually, they, they, they do have much bigger impact. You know, oftentimes articles from literary journals, um, you know, end up being radio interviews on ABC, they can get into the news cycle, um, you know, they can get coverage in, in newspapers um, to varying degrees that, that that's happened. Things I've written about have actually, you know, you know been little articles in, in Crikey and in other um, newspapers. And, and there is a way that literary culture, because I think because Australia is a small country, um, the literary scene can kind of have an impact 
in these larger cultural venues in a way that I think is pretty unimaginable in the US. And it's actually something I think people here take for granted a little bit. I don't think people realize how kind of great that is and how sort of lucky we are in Australia to have that. Um, even even though literature often does feel uh, peripheral, you know, that it, that it can enter these conversations. That's, you know, to me, that's the positive. Um, and there are tons of people in Australia who love books and who care about books. The flip side is, it's very small. Australian literary culture it can be very insular, which I think is a, is a generous assessment. Um, and the reality is we are a physically very large country. You know, we're almost the size of the continental you know, United States, but we've got one fifteenth the population. And distribution is, is ju just purely from a material and economic perspective, a real problem in Australia. It's really expensive to get paper. It's really expensive to ship books uh, when you just have a much lower population density and long distances to travel. And so, you know, a lot of those things push Australian literature to being probably more conservative um, than, than some overseas places. I, I do think that's changing and that's something we can talk about. But, I, you know, I do think... Um, this is not a new a new complaint. You know, Patrick White famously complained about complained about the dun colored realism uh, of Australian literature. That's actually not quite his phrase, um, although everyone remembers it that way. It's a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, A. A. Phillips talked about the the cultural cringe. This idea that Australians automatically uh, presume that overseas cultural products are better than local products, and I, I think the cringe still operates in in various ways. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of, I think there are, I think Australians have a lot of insecurity about local culture. Um, Phillips, everyone, when they talk about the cringe, uh, the idea of the cultural cringe. So his, his argument at the time, this is, this is an essay he wrote in a literary journal, Meangin in 1950, if I am remembering correctly. Um, he, people think that the cringe just manifests in the idea that Australians think that Australian culture is worse than overseas culture for, for Phillips, it was UK culture specifically. Um, but actually Phillips said there were two kinds of the cringe. There was the cringe, which was that being, being nervous that Australian books weren't as good as English books. Um, but then there was what he called the cringe inverted, which was actually this really aggressive nationalism where people said Australian books are better than anything else. Um, and you, you know, you know, kind of, um, the movie review show that ran for a long time here, Margaret and David, you know, they were famous for giving a bump to Australian films. They would mark them not as hard as international films. And for Phillips, that would be the cringe inverted. That's kind of giving, you know, giving an unfair boost to local culture. Um, and he actually went on to argue that, that for him, the cringe consisted of unnecessary comparisons between the local and the national. You know, his, his opinion, as soon as you were, as soon as you began invoking those questions saying, well, is Australian culture as good as blank? That was it. That was the cringe. As soon as you had that that kind of question, um, and I think a lot of that still, you know, it still operates in in various ways in the culture here. I completely agree with you. I think it does still operate in a in a very serious way in Australia, and I do find that as Australians, we are probably in a way where we're much more critical of our own writing um, that comes from Australia. I know that sometimes I'll pick up an Australian book. And I'll be far more critical of it than maybe I would be of something in translation or something from, you know, another English speaking country. Yeah. But I, I do think that there is a level of reality within it because I think we do publish a lot of crap here. And, and that's not 
it's and I don't mean that to degrade some of the stuff that's published, but sure. I think we do we do stuff that is mainstream. We sell yep. most of our books in Australia in a place called Big W or Target or Kmart. And I think we are we're selling to the majority and the people who do read books are reading things that are, in my opinion, often pretty cringeworthy. And I think we do we do kind of do that a bit. And I think in Australia we've had a long history of it. And you go back to the fifties, like you were saying, and most of the arty people in Australia wanted to get the fuck out of here and went to London and went to other places like that to um, to get culture. So I think we do still hang on to that a lot in Australia. I, look, I, I think so. There's a long history to this. I mean, you know, Henry Lawson complained about, you know, people who would go over to London for a year and become hot and come back and, you know, be important in Australia just because they'd been in London. You know, he, he looked down on this. Um, and, th and that was before Phillips. Um, Sam Twyford Moore wrote a really good piece for the LA Review of Books about a decade ago um, on kind of the cultural cringe. And he argued that the center was America, the US, I should say. I, I don't, you know, United States. I don't like saying America because America is much bigger than the United States. But, um, uh, you know, that that was sort of his argument. I think it's true. And that that there is this kind of pressure for Australians still to go overseas and kind of prove their mettle um, and, and come back, that that's still, still a real story. Um, the, the publishing one is a really complicated one. I, I probably know way too much about the Australian publishing industry. It's probably, you know, not not very uh, useful information. But but a thing that's real, one, one of my mentors, academic mentors, Mark Davis, published a great essay in Heat magazine, which is published by Aberindic and Giramondo. Um, and it's coming back, which is very exciting. It's, it's been away for a long time, but he wrote a, a great piece called The Death of the Literary Paradigm in Australian Publishing. And he basically argued that there was this period in Australia, um, which stretches from kind, you know, kind of from the, the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s. That's kind of what he's talking about, that 30 year period. But basically when the, you know, the, the, the boomers and their older kids were going through school. Um, where literature was really important. It was boosted by these various institutions um, and publishers felt a social obligation to publish literary works um, that often weren't very profitable, it has to be said, but they would keep publishing them anyway. Um, and they would use this thing called the portfolio model to cross subsidize unsuccessful literary titles that were deemed worthy um, by selling more commercial works. But Mark basically argues that in the 1990s, this starts to change. Publishers want every book to be a potential, um, potentially profitable book. Um, and and a, lot of, a lot of attention starts going to trying to land mega bestsellers, you know, like Harry Potter and Twilight and things, because they're so valuable, so, so valuable for publishers. There's so much money in them. Um, and as a result, you know, books fall through the cracks. Um, and I think that's really the case now with, you know, books that I think are um, culturally important, culturally significant, are, you know, rhetorically complex, uh, have dense ideas. I think, you know, I think it is a really hard, it is really hard for people to sell those books at the moment if they don't have a, a clear path to um, marketing. And, I, you know, I know you had Michael Winkler on um, this this program already in a very interesting interview in his book, 
Grimish, which was self-published this year, which is an excellent book. And I can totally, I totally get why publishers, you know, didn't know what to do with that book. It's, it's a, it's a confusing book. It doesn't fit into the categories. You know, I, I don't blame them for not publishing it. Um, you know, but to me, that's a fantastic, it's a fantastic book. And, and, you know, I think, you know, one of the best Australian books to come out this year. Um, and it's kind of amazing that, that no one, you know, picked it up. And I think we are in a moment where books are, are falling through the cracks, even among the smaller publishers who are, who are very good and publish very good books. Um, it's, you know, that even they are limited in terms of what they can do. Yeah. Well, I think with, in Australia, publishers like Text, who are doing a, a great job with some works, and they yes. are, they're, you know, they're reprinting quite a, a lot of classics in Australia that have been out of print for years. Yes. But I think even a even a big publishing house like them, are relatively big in Australia. They're, anyway. they're 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 quite big now. I mean, they really they've been incredibly successful over the last decade. They're they're really they're becoming quite a large publisher. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of their work and a lot of their profit is probably coming from stuff they're publishing overseas and printing here. And I think with that in mind, I, I assume that they're probably less adventurous with some of their work from Australian authors. Yeah, it's look, it's a complicated one. So a lot of tech's business model historically is in rights management and, and, and it's a kind of an asset spotting. It's looking at a book that's sold well overseas and going, we're looking at a book that has been published overseas and saying, we'll publish that for the Australian market and we'll make money off it. And they're very good at that. Scribe historically has done that as well. Some other, there are a couple other publishers that that are very involved in 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 buying and selling rights. Um, text being the most famous for it, um, but yeah, they they probably have you know. So to, if I were to compare them, and Text is a great publisher, so I'm not trying to take anything away from them, and they they publish very good books. But uh, if you can compare them to a publisher like Giramondo, mm -hmm. which is a highly subsidized publisher, it has to be said, highly subsidized both by Western Sydney University and by the Australia Council, our, our funding body here. Um, and Giramondo, um, you know, is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the closest thing to an Australian Dolky archive, you know, and they, um, you know, I, um, has had connections with Dolky over the years and with other publishers, you know, like that, um, like Faber and FSG and those kinds of publishers in, in, in the U S, um, and new directions. And, you know, um, they're, they're that kind of publisher, um, and Giramondo is really good at publishing, um, new work that might not sell well um, at all. So fa famously, you know, um, in a in a essay he published last year, Ivor Indyk, the publisher at Giramondo, noted that um, a book of poems by Brian Castro that they published won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry and proceeded to sell fewer than 50 copies in the next three months. <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's the kind of thing they're willing to weather. Um, text is is a more uh, ha has a more commercial focus by nature. And I just, you know, I don't think that they are uh, probably in a position, um, but, they, but they just as a fact, don't take those risks on, on less commercial books. I, I don't think. Yeah. We've had a fair share of really great writers in Australia. We've had people like Patrick White and Randolph Stowe and um, Helen Garner, Christina said, and, yeah. you know, Jared Manane, who I'm sure we'll talk about quite a bit. Do you think there's a collective grid that uh, links Australian writing? It's a fantastic question. Um, and, and I should say, like, I, I have only been reading Australian writing now for, you know, about 17 years. Um, so I, so I am not, um, in some ways I have probably not read some of the obvious classics of Australian literature. I, I research 
contemporary Australian literature, but, but so, you know, I, I have read my brother, Jack, and I have gone back and tried to read some of the, you know, so, some of the other, other things. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that's a hard claim to make. One thing I would say that I think is interesting and un, unique ish about Australian writing of the 20th century is that I think a lot of Australian writing of the 20th century was not modernist in its form. Um, and this is not my argument, I should add. Other other people have made this point, but that it it often used realism or naturalism as a means to explore the same kinds of content and problems that modernism did. And I think that that's something that's interesting uh, about Australia is this kind of it's it's weird kind of belated reaction to to modernism. You know, arguably modernism. We have Stead, who's you know fairly early in Australia, and you have some poets. Um, the, the most famous being Angry Penguins and the, the Ern Malley scandal, um, which was itself a criticism of modernism. Um, although I love the Ern Malley poems, I think they're great poems. But um, the, um, you know, r- really modernism in Australia, you get Patrick White then, okay, in the 40s and the 50s, and then really in the late 1960s is when kind of modernism hits, you know, actually at the point that postmodernism is happening elsewhere. So you get this weird thing where kind of modernism and postmodernism almost are happening at the same time in Australia in this very strange way. And you get this cultural explosion in the in the 60s and the 70s. That's um, so so I think there's something, you know, there's something weirdly belated about Australian literary culture that I think is kind of interesting. And maybe that's a unifying thread. But I'm, I'm not certain beyond that, that there really is anything that that links it together. Um, uh, I should I should say you know being being a colony, um, being a settler country, um, the process of colonization, I and mean, I think that is another thing that that links it together in both good and bad ways. That would be the other thing I would add. Yeah, it's we have kind of a strange history with writing because I feel like there there was a period where everything was very naturalistic and everything was almost landscape painting, like you, yep. you know your real pastoral pieces, and yep. I think now it's shifted to kind of a like gritty realism. Yep. And I feel like we, in a way we miss like kind of that postmodernism. Look for, for sure. I, I will say, I do think, um, I do think there's a lot more experimental writing coming out in the last 10 years in particular. Um, you could point to people like Ryan O'Neill, um, um, and, and writers like Jen Craig, um, and Wayne McCauley, and some, you know, younger writers. By younger, I mean writers under fifty, of course. You know, sadly, because that's that's young as, as uh, for writers. Um, but you know, I think there is there is a new there's a new crop of of writers who are doing more experimental things. Um, but I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of it is in a kind of um, is is maybe a little bit more postmodern in that it's it's kind of quirky, kind of kind of jokey, kind of. Um, you know, it's it's not dense. It's not modernist. It's not it's not estranging. It's not trying to give you some weird aesthetic experience. It's not trying to be difficult. Um, it's it's trying to be sort of pleasurable and engaging and and funny and unexpected, maybe, which is is perfectly good as well. Um, and and there are you know there are books from the last uh, ten years like Anthony Macris's Great Western Highway, you know, which is a very very difficult. Um, and complex text, John Scott's N, um, and um, Louis Armand's The Combinations, which we might talk about at some point as well. And, and, you know, as well as those writers like Jen Craig and 
Macaulay and Renee um, and Martin Edmund, who's a New Zealand author, but has lived in Australia for a long time, um, is a you know very complex writer in, in those ways as well. So we we have a few, but you you kind of have to dig for them, <laughs> um, I think. I read uh, John Scott's N quite a few years ago now, mm. and it is I guess it makes claims to be Australia's Gravity's Rainbow or something similar mm -hmm. to that, and it is it is very different. Yes, and I'm not sure if it's something that would really tick any boxes for overseas readers like I yeah think it's very australian yeah look it's um yeah i it's 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 all i would say about it is a, it's a book that i read very quickly and i i think i need to read it again i don't i don't know if i've come to any definite um positions on it at all except that i i think i need to read it again to come to some positions on it but it is it is a very interesting book i think it would be hard for overseas readers to engage with it because it is it is it is so Australian in, in its content and orientation, for sure. Are there some Australian authors or books you believe deserve a lot more recognition here or overseas? Yeah, look, um, for sure. I mean, um, you know, so, I mean, Jen Craig is getting some now, which is fantastic um, to see. I, I, um, I've been a huge fan of her novel Panthers in the Museum of Fire for some time, and I'll talk about that later. Um, to some degree as well, um, but it's she's been picked up by Zerogram in the U.S., um, fan, a fantastic publisher, and it's good to see. You know, she was on um, she was on Michael Silver, Silverblatt's program in the U.S., which is fantastic. Um, Dustin Illingsworth had a great Substack interview with her, and it's good to see her get some recognition. Um, I just was actually sent a copy of her by her. I've never met her, but she very kindly sent me a copy um, through through a friend who got in contact with her of her first book called After the Accident, which is out of print. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It is just such a good book uh, and different. Again, Panthers in the Museum of Fire is a kind of a Bernhardian novel, uh, but very different from Bernhardt as well. Um, After the Accident, is it's, it's almost, it almost reminds me of Rachel Cusk, except it was in the trilogy she did except it was written six years before Rachel Cusk's trilogy. So, you know, um, so it's kind of anticipating it rather than, than responding to it. Um, but she is just a fantastic author. Um, I really love the work of Wayne McCauley and have for a very long time. He is, however, I think a very Australian author in his themes. And I don't know, I don't know how that would um, translate um, overseas. I think Martin Edmund, who, you know, again, is, is a New Zealand author, but, you know, some of his books like The Supply Party and Luca and Tara are really Australian books. Um, I think he's a fantastic and, you know, writer, fascinating writer. Um, and, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to see more attention for his work overseas as well. Um, so those are, those are all ones I mentioned. And then you have the opposite case of someone like Gerald Renane, who I think has had, uh, is probably a much better overseas reception than he still has in Australia. Um, not, not that he's unrecognized here. He, he's been recognized here. He won the uh, Patrick White Award and the um, Melbourne Prize for Literature, which were, are both career achievement um, awards, but he, uh, he's never won the Miles Franklin. I think, I think he is the most important living Australian writer not to win the Miles Franklin. He had never been even shortlisted for the Miles Franklin until his last novel, um, Border Districts, was published. They they shortlisted that, um, and then he won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for that. But it's it's really it's he's won Premier's State Awards, um, 
but but he hadn't won any of the major literary awards for a single book before that. And so in, in, in even still here in Australia, I think he's someone who is uh, very divisive. Some people love his work and other people just don't like it at all. Um, really, really quite, quite dislike it, in fact. I think it's funny with Manane because he's been brought up with the Nobel, obviously, for years yeah. and years now. And I think in Australia, as you were saying a bit before, in a way, I think we're always 20 to 40 years behind the rest of the world. <laughs> I feel like we've, we've been so far behind picking up on the fact that he's a really great writer and he's sitting in, you know, in country Victoria Mm. living his life out people don't read him here i don't think there's that many really passionate manane readers in australia as opposed to overseas so i mean the the thing and he's he's just come out with what is his nominally his last book although this isn't this is this is i think his second or third last book he's written a few last books but this is called last letter to a reader and it's a book that he's he's that's just come out um you know last week effectively and it's a book where he's written about all of his um all of his books um, and it's a fantastic book. Um, but he says, and he said this elsewhere as well, you know, he, he kind of decided to stop writing in the mid 1990s. And it's, he's written several times about why he decided to stop writing. It's a little bit mysterious. Um, I've asked him about it. I, I don't know, I don't know him well, but I have, I've, I've met him and I've, I've interviewed him um, for a book that I'm writing about him. And he's, a, I, I will add as well, he is a, uh, He's an absolutely lovely person. I don't. I don't usually. I actually. I actually published an essay in Music and Literature when they did a volume on Renee in 2013. It was an essay about how I'd never met him and how I didn't want to to meet him actually because I had because I loved the book so much that I was kind of very terrified to meet the person who'd who'd written them. And I think I'm someone like, um, you know, um, William Gaddis in The Recognitions. One of his characters, Wyatt Wyatt Gwynn. Um, you know, says in the book, what's this, what's this passion for, you know, meeting the latest artist, the latest author, what's, what's any, what's any artist, but the dregs, you know, of their, of their creation. And um, Thomas Bernhard in Extinction's got an even better bit where he says, if you meet any author, they immediately make themselves intolerable. You can't sit at the same table with them. You've got to get up and leave. And, and I've, I've maybe tended to be that way a, a little bit, though I, I know a lot of authors, but I think sometimes when I really like an author's work, I'm a little afraid to meet them lest they might, they might spoil it for me in some way. Um, and, and I will say with, with Gerald, um, he was, I, I got in contact him, with him with, through intermediaries and I, and I drove out to Garok, which is not that far from, from where I live. It's only a couple hours down the road. Um, and he was he was so friendly. He was so generous with his time. Um, he's, he's, I'm, I'm in no way suggesting he's a pushover of a person. He's, he's not, he's got very strong views on things. That's, that's clear. Um, and he's someone who I think ha lives according to, and I, and I mean, this is a compliment lives according to, to principles, like really, really does. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure that has caused conflicts for other people who don't see eye to eye with him on things over the years, but, but really was so, so friendly, so welcoming, so generous with his time. Um, he he also did ask me some very pointed questions about what I thought I was doing and what I thought literary criticism did and and how that related to his work. And also made it very clear to me that he didn't think very much of literary criticism, which was all I thought was very fair. Um, but but yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to see that difference in in recognition here. Um, 
And yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say why. Look, I think, you know, and I'm sure other countries have, have similar versions of that um, with, with Renee. And I, I do have one friend, a, a, a female scholar, who's, who is a big fan of Renee, who said that in her view, in order to be a fan of Renee, you had to be either, you have to be either a man or raised Catholic. You can be both, but you have to be one in order to be a fan of this work. So I don't, I don't know if that's fair or not, but that may offer one, one perspective on it. So interesting. Yeah. Do you think in Australia, if you write a book that is uniquely Australian, that won't sell overseas, do you think it's worth writing or do you think Australian writers should pitch their books to overseas markets? Oh, uh, look, I mean, I think, um, writers have to be driven by their obsessions. I, Gilbert Sorrentino has got some good stuff on, on this in uh, one of my favorite novels, Imagine of Qualities of Actual Things, where he, he has this whole bit in it where he kind of rants against Freud at various bits. And he says, look, writers are driven by their obsessions. You can't unpick the obsessions too much. You might undo kind of the magic. You have to let writers be obsessed about what they're obsessed about. And it sounds crazy, but I think it's true. You know, the best writers do keep returning to the same ideas, the same themes. They've got the same fixations. Um, you know, look, I think, I think, um, to me, good writing is, is ineffable. Uh, you know, it, 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 it really is. I think even most, most serious artists admit that they don't always know why they do what they do. It doesn't mean that they're not smart. This is actually one thing I like about Renane's work. He's very open to say it's only 20 years after I wrote this book that I understood, you know, kind of you know, kind of some key part of it. And that's, it's not to say that he's not smart about his own work and that he does have attentions. He does. And that, you know, they're very clear, but, um, but I think the, 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 to me, the best works of art exceed their, their, their writer's intentions. Um, and so, you know, I, I think writers, you know, the, the best writers are, there's a compulsion to it. They've got to write what they've got to write. And, um, I think the second, look, I don't mean to take away things. I think if people want to write for markets, I think that's great and that's fine. I have no problem with it. I, I, I really don't. Um, I'm not anti-genre. I'm not anti-commercial writing. I'm not anti-realist writing. I, I like books. I like all kinds of books. And I like, you know, I still read science fiction and I read realist novels and I, li I like those things. So, I, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But I think when you're talking about kind of, you know, high art novels, highbrow novels, I think you know writers have to just follow their obsessions that's just just the reality of it um so yeah i think the reason i was asking that question is because someone like christina stead said a lot of her books in places she didn't live well i mean so so the man who loved children is a great example and i look i i'm not a stead scholar but my that the setting of that was changed from sydney to georgetown um for the first section of the book it's actually set. I, I I went to university in D.C. and lived in Georgetown, and um, the set the setting of the imaginary house is just a couple blocks from where I used to live uh, when I was a university student, um, and it doesn't make any sense in D.C. Like it just the setting doesn't make sense. And my my understanding is that she was actually uh, encouraged to switch it by her publishers. Um, it makes a lot more sense if the book is set in Sydney. So to me, you know, look, I don't know. Um, I don't know to what degree it was, you know, to what degree that was in our, and she was also an expatriate, you know, lived outside of, you know, Australia for 40 years. Um, so I don't know to what degree that was uh, determined by other, other factors for her. I just, I just have no idea. Um, 
you know, to me, an interesting one, I've, I've just read Louis Armand's The Combinations recently, and he's a he's an Australian writer who's lived in Prague since the early 1990s. But it's an incredibly Australian novel in terms of the diction, the humor. Um, it, like, it's just it's just incredibly, it's an incredibly Australian book. It's a book entirely about Prague, but it is just, and it, and it, and it couldn't be nominated for the Miles Franklin Award, uh, which it wasn't, but it couldn't have been anyway because that prize says it, I forget the exact phrase, but it, it has to focus on Australian uh, themes. Someone else, someone, I'm sure someone listening will remember the exact phrase and, and uh, think I'm an idiot for not remembering it, but I can't. Um, Australian life in all of its phases. That's the that's the Miles Franklin um, uh, bit. But it's an, an incredibly Australian novel. So, you know, I think even the question of what, you know, what that means, authors may, may well write about something completely different. They may immerse themselves in an overseas culture yet still produce something that's very Australian. So I think, I think it's just a tough one. Um, certainly it's a smart option for authors because they're going to, you know, if you can sell into the U S market or the UK market, it's just so much bigger. Australia is 25 million people. It's, you know, a book that sells well in Australia will sell 6,000 copies. So Australian books sell for, you know, 30 bucks. Um, and the author keeps three, three bucks for every book that sells. So if you sell 6,000 copies, you've made $18,000 before tax in Australia. That's not gonna, not gonna pay the rent, um, you know, so that's, that's, where, that's the problem. That's where we remind people that the tax rate here on that money would be 40% as well. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite book to teach? Oh, that is a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I actually, um, I've, I've taught a lot of different, I've taught a lot of different books over the years, um, in a, in a lot of different things. Um, so I have, I have some specific stories. I love, I love teaching the Clarice Lispector story, the foreign legion. That's a favorite of mine to, to, to teach. Um, and one that I think it's, it's one of those stories that students really struggle with the difficulty in it. And then they get it, and it's it's a really amazing. It's a there's something about that story that um, it's such a weird story, and students are confused by it, but they're they're all able to kind of get there, and it's really amazing to watch that. I actually love teaching poetry. Um, very very fond of that, and I actually love teaching you know the the classics. You know, I, I love teaching romantic poetry and Shakespearean sonnets and John Donne and that stuff as well. Even though that's not my area. I love my area is kind of modernist lit is what I sort of trained doing, but I teach contemporary lit as well. Um, and I, I do think we're at a moment where modernist lit is, um, is a bit more difficult for students of those of modernist novels for teaching Virginia Woolf's the waves is one I, I particularly love, um, teaching, um, that I think, again, I think one that students kind of, uh, understand, um, whereas something like to the lighthouse can be very, um, it's a fantastic novel, but I think students can can miss what's going on into the lighthouse. I think the waves they can understand a little bit more. So, yeah. Okay, let's get onto your writing. So you write essays and short stories, and you've won you won the Age Short Story Prize years and years and years ago. Yes, yes, a long time ago. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. So who are your inspirations for writing, and what are you working on at the moment? Yeah. Look. Um, so. Um, Right now, I'm working on a on a book on Gerald Renane, and that's kind of the foremost thing on my on my mind. Um, that is due to the publisher next year. Um, so that's a book about his late his late novels. Um, 
because he's he's as I mentioned earlier, he stopped publishing in the in the mid 1990s, and then started writing in basically because um, Ivor Indyk at Giramondo um, at, at in in the early 2000s, Indyk was based um, at the University of Newcastle and had a symposium on Renane's work up there um, and got him to go up there. And, um, you know, as you know, Renane said that, you know, he really was kind of brought back to writing by Ivor, basically, you know, talking to him and encouraging him to start writing again and basically saying, look, if you write something, I'll, I'll publish it, whatever it is you want. Um, and that, that sort of revived, you know, that intervention revived his career. And I think it's a good, you know, a good reminder of the kinds of things that a good publisher can do. A good publisher can, can actually do some, you know, some amazing things like that. Um, but again, Giramondo is a very singular publisher and, and one that I have a lot of respect for. Um, but yeah, so, so a lot of my focus is on that at the, at the moment. Um, in terms of my own stories, I, I published a book of short stories back in 2010, I'd actually had that, I'd finished the manuscript of that in 2006, uh, 2005, in fact, and it kind of kicked around for about five years before it, it got published. It's, it's very hard to publish collections of short stories in Australia. Um, there are about between kind of 15 and 20 published a year at the moment, which is much better than it's been historically. They're mostly done by small publishers. Um, but yeah, it, it just, it, um, it was, a, the, there were, it was a particularly bad market at that point in time. Um, and so, yes, the book got picked up by a firm press in 2010. And that was a book of short stories about, um, about Washington DC around the time of September 11th. Um, and you know, the only thing I can say about it, about that book is that was a book that I wrote when I was a much younger person. And I just, I don't have a lot of personal attachment to that book. I, it's not like I'm, I don't disown it. I'm not saying it's a bad book. I just think that I, uh, you know, I just have very little attachment to the person who kind of wrote, wrote those stories or was interested in those, in those things. So for me, it's, it's, I've had a bit of a break from writing fiction myself, um, for publication, at least, um, the, the kinds of things I'm interested in now are, are very, are very different very different questions. Um, and so at that point in time, you know, I was reading, I was reading a lot of modernist writers, but also a lot of realist, uh, writers as well. And the, the book is primarily realist, the short story book. And now I think I'm interested in, um, yeah. in in, in, you know, um, you know, Th Thomas Bernhardt has become very important to me in the, in the interim. I, I read the novel woodcutters about, 12 years ago and it was the first Bernhardt I'd read and I knew immediately that this was going to become one of my favorite authors. And so I read all of his books in chronological order after that. Um, and that was a really, yeah, kind of a, kind of a very profound experience for me. And I, I, I love, I love his sentences. Um, I love, uh, I love quite formal writing and I love writing that folds in sort of um, even kind of awful bureaucratic writing. I'm quite, I'm quite interested in writing that sort of uses like, because we live in a world that's just dominated by this really bad institutional writing, whether it's companies, whether it's, you know, you know, emails from HR and whatever company you work for, or whether it's, you know, an email from the government or whatever, just, you know, we live, we live, you know, live in this world where this kind of very bureaucratic, very official, confusing language is just part of our, our everyday experience. Um, and so I'm really interested in writing that folds that stuff in. 
David Foster Wallace was very interested in that. I, he's, he's not a particular influence for me, but that, that aspect of his writing, I think is something that I'm very interested in. Um, I loved, um, more recently, you know, um, um, Jim Gower's novel explosives. I really loved that book and I loved the way that the writing was very discursive and, you know, it was almost like someone talking in a way, um, throughout, throughout that book. I know it's, um, you know, different readers have had different responses, but I really liked, I really liked that it was discursive, but it, it's also interested in some of those same questions of how official writing, official bureaucratic euphemistic writing gets folded into discourse. Um, so those are, those are a couple, um, mm. I would, that I would name. I think, uh, working for Australian educational institutions, we are extremely well-versed in that kind of writing yes. and the unofficial term that, that I've used working in government is wank speak. And, <laughs> and I think that is pretty apt and it does, Australia does it extremely well. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's a true, it's a true story. It sounds like a fake story, but it's true. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you too very quickly, but I taught, um, when I was at the university of Melbourne, I taught a course for a government department. I, I won't go beyond, um, which that is, uh, about principles of clear writing. And I went through all these different ideas for how to write, you know, plain English, straightforward English, strong verbs, you know, um, avoiding strings of prepositional phrases, all the things that avoiding nominalization, which is turning, um, turning verbs and adjectives into nouns. And, um, I went through all of this and a very nice, uh, uh, public servant raised their hand and said, look, this is great. Like really interesting but what if you need to not be clear? And I said, oh, well, you can just use the opposite principles to the ones that I've been discussing. And I kid you not, like all 20 people in the room started taking notes the second, <laughs> the second I described this. And they're like, okay, wait, so I can displace the action from the verbs into the nouns in my sentence and then use a weak verb? Oh, this is great. I'll use this all the time. And similarly, I was involved in a, in a, government, um, a government report at one point that was going to go to a minister and we were told to make the executive summary less clear so that the minister would uh would read the document so that's, you know, um, so there you go that's the, the the benefit of unclear writing but i i do think it's a huge part of the world we live in and as someone who cares about language and rhetoric you know i think it's uh it's 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 an old thing you know um you know george orwell's politics in the english language william zinzer on writing well these are you know they're very old kind of you know arguments about this but i do think this richard lanham writes really well about the official style and bureaucratic writing but i think it's 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 uh it's a thing that's very important in the world that we live in and i i'm kind of surprised that less i understand why but i'm always surprised that writing doesn't engage with it more because i think it is so much of the world that we the rhetorical world that we inhabit. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Emmett Stinson. Happy cows make the best tasting beef. We make our cows extra tasty by feeding them the highest quality pure Californian wheat. Check us out at highsteaks.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Emmett Stinson. Was there a gateway book for you, a book that opened up the world of literature? Yeah, look, um, this is a fascinating, it's a fascinating question. I, lo I love that. I love that you ask um, this, this question on the podcast. And of course, the problem is that, that there are a ton, but, I'll, but I'll, I'll narrow it down. 
Um, I grew up reading science fiction. I, I was a I was a nerd as a kid, uh, you know. Um, and you know, in in middle school, loved science fiction. I loved you know Ray Bradbury short stories and Kurt Vonnegut and things like that. Um, but I remember reading Walter Miller's Chronicle uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, and that being a novel that really uh, opened up kind of different a different idea of what writing could do. Famously, in that book, the protagonist of the just dies 120 pages into the book, and that really that really threw me at the time. And it's also a book that takes place over thousands of years. It's really got that kind of uh, maximalist epic scope. I'm afraid to reread the book now because I'd probably think it was terrible, you know, but, um, but it was, it, it really mattered to me at the time. And then in, uh, then in high schools I was reading, I think, I think, you know, the book that I would name that was, that really changed things for me was Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, I ended up doing when I was in high school, a kind of a big independent research project on that book. Um, and again, just kind of, kind of the sweep of the book, the, you know, it's, it's, it's not a realist work. It's, um, you know, it's, it's very over the top. It's very extreme. Um, the, the narrative reflects the interstates of the characters. It just made me realize that novels could kind of do different things. And I think, th I honestly think from growing up reading science fiction, I felt like I almost had to learn to read the realist novel. And in a way, experimental fiction made more sense to me intuitively because I was like, oh, these are books that are about ideas and where characters are maybe less important. And I'm, I'm used to that. You know, I read science fiction books. I'm very used to that. That's um, versus the kind of the realist narrative was almost something I had to acclimatize to in a way. Um, and the other the other writers when I was young that mattered to me a lot. Um, and it's maybe a bizarre two bizarre ones are um, Edmund Spencer's uh, uh, sonnets. Um, and Jane Austen, just because they were funny. And it was one of the first times that I realized like, oh, literature should be funny. Like I should be laughing when I'm reading and it's best when I'm laughing when I'm reading. And when, when you know, stories and poems are making fun of people, it's great. I love that. Um, and that was, a, I think, a really, a really huge one for me. Um, actually, the... Um, William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, which is the first modernist novel I loved. Humor is so important to, to, some, de to some degree in the Quentin section, but really in the third section, the, the Jason Compton section, when you're in the mind of this unbearable misogynist character um, who's just actually brutally satirized in the book. He's this really pathetic figure as well. And it's, it's awful, but it's also really funny. And that, that was another one that was really meaningful for me, I think. Okay, let's move on to what you're currently reading and what's in your to-be-read pile. Sure, sure. Um, too many things, I think. Um, so, look, um, I'll name I'll name a couple different novels that I've read over the last year that I've really loved. Um, I mentioned Jim Gower's book, Novel Explosives. I love I loved that novel. Um, re really, probably my favorite book that I read over the last year. Um, I mentioned already the way that it uses bureaucratic and euphemistic language the, the title of the novel novel explosives is itself a euphemism for uh, a new class of explosives that are extremely dangerous um, i love the way that it it uses euphemistic language i love the way that it kind of is an exploded thriller um it's a it's a very pacey novel it's not like a it's not like a gravity's rainbow kind of a novel it's not a it's not, you know, it's not, it's not the recognitions. It's not like a dense Joycean novel. It's, it's a kind of a weird inverted thriller. It's a really fun book. Um, I love that. 
I read Christina Stead's House of All Nations this year. And I just think that's a fantastic novel. It's this kind of 800 page book about banking in Paris. And it's just totally weird. Um, it has, you know, a chapter, uh, several chapters, you know, it goes for about 50 pages about this elaborate scheme to gain the international wheat trade. Like it's just, it's, it's so nerdy and so detailed. And I just, I just love it, um, for that, for that reason. Um, there's also these great, I, I should note, I wrote a book, um, called satirizing modernism. I love satire. I love funny books and it's a really funny book. And, um, in particular, there's this very wealthy couple that has these unbearable, um, awful dinners that this other couple keeps getting invited to. And they have to like, they have to suffer through all these courses of unbearably heavy food. That's not very good as well. Um, and that's great. Um, I read, uh, Clarice Lispector's complete stories again. I actually read, I read that when it came out, but I reread it this year and, and they're still great. I, I think I am more hit and miss on Lispector's novels than a lot of people are, but to me, her stories are just, they're just fantastic. I love them because they all have the same basic form, which is a, they're all in the mind of a character who spends the whole story imagining the mental state of another character and they're kind of there's sort of antagonism towards this character, but you never really find out if it's pure projection or if it's real or not. Like it's really unclear what the status of reality in the stories is. And I, and I, and I love that. And the writing is beautiful. Uh, I've just finished Gerald Renane's last letter to a reader. Um, I read, I read dark and Bill's cat this year as well, which is a really interesting novel. One that I think I was conflicted about in various ways, but is a book that I hope to read again, because I think it, I think it's such an interesting book. And then I recently read Louis Armand's The Combinations, and this is one I'll talk about for a second. Um, and I mentioned it already. It's this 888-page novel. It's sort of based on um, the moves on a chessboard, so it's got that Parechian element. It has footnotes like Wallace. It's got songs like Pynchon. It's got limericks throughout. It's got all these diagrams. Um, it's it's a sort of it's sort of about a conspiracy about the Voynich manuscript, kind of. It's also a history of the city of Prague. It's a fascinating book. I don't think it's a book for everyone. I think it's a very masculine book. Um, there, there are a lot of sections that don't go anywhere narratively. It takes kind of 300 pages for the narrative to even kind of get going in the book. So it is, you've got, it's, it's, it's definitely for readers who like maximalist and encyclopedic novels it's you know i think it's it's very much in that in that wheelhouse um but it's a fantastic novel i i didn't I'm, like i missed um a lot of the complexity in in the book i'm sure i missed a lot of the references in the book it's a book that to me though deserves uh more attentive readers and it's a book that's had basically as far as i can see almost no reception in australia at all and i think that's shocking um to be honest um we were talking about that on Twitter yes. a couple of days ago. And so I, I went out and got myself, I got myself the ebook and I've started reading it already. And um, hopefully I'll have Louis on the show at some yes. point soon. But um, yeah, it's, it's surprising that something like that can have virtually no attention because it seems like it's something that is, it's been on my radar for quite a few years. And like I told you, yes. I thought he was a French writer. I thought he was somebody yeah. who was... I had no idea he was Australian until, you know, much more recently. And I'm, I'm astounded by the fact that people can put together these avant-garde modernist uh, or postmodernist books like that 
and seems to get zero attention for them. I, look, I think my my understanding is that he's better known as a poet in Australia, and I think he's got a much more established reputation amongst poets. Um, and part of this may be to the way that 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 the fiction and poetry scenes in Australia don't really um, connect as much as one might um, hope they would. Um, but I think he definitely has has you know quite you know well known um, fans and you know poetic fans. In Australia, I believe he's done work with with John Trantner, and I think Pam Brown is a is a fan of his 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 poetry um, and others. So um, I think he's regarded in in that sense, and I think many of those people have read his his novels. But it's it is it is shocking to me that there's been basic, basically no conversation about that. And look, it's not unusual. Ben Etherington, um, as uh, who's the was the writer behind Critic Watch in the Sydney Review of Books, you know, had a great essay about how. Anthony Macris's uh, Capital Volume Two, The Great Western Highway, basically just had almost no coverage in Australia. You know, and it's this like, like look. I mean, to me, the thing with the combinations is it is it is one of the most ambitious Australian novels of the last decade. Whether you like it or love it, whether you think it is a perfect novel uh, or you know whatever, it is so ambitious, and there's so much going on in the book, and it deserves, I think, a serious reckoning. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that's true of Macris's book as well. And, and I think, I think it is disappointing that, uh, that it hasn't gotten there. I think that's a shame. Let's talk about Darkensville, Darkensville's cat for a second yeah. as well. Cause I read that very recently too. Yes. What were your thoughts? Look, I, I, um, it's a book that I read. I read it very quickly. It is a book that is very complex and needs more attention than I gave it. Um, I love the satires of the South. I'm, I, as I mentioned, I love satire. I lived in Virginia for a very long time near where much of the book is set. Those bits are hilarious. They really, really depict that area in a very funny way. That's great. I love the satirical bits in it. Um, the complexity of the novel is absolutely there. Um, I really loved Chris Villa's very extended review of that. After I finished it, I, I watched all that. And I, and I think he does a really good job of going through the complexity in the, in the book. I like, I tend to like novels that are, that are, that are um, dialogic. And I, and I mean that in a precise way in, in the way that the uh, Russian theorist Bakhtin talked about um, novels being dialogic where, where insights are distributed amongst the different characters in the novel and it un, and in so doing the kind of particular perspective of the book is undermined to some degree. Um, one of the problems to me with Dark and Bill's Cat is that I think, um, I think we're meant to kind of like Darkenville at the beginning. And I, I just don't, <laughs> I just, I just really don't. I think he's quite unlikable. And I think there is a, I think there is a, to me, there's a disjuncture between the perspective that we're intended to share early in the book and the and the reaction that many readers will have. And I think it's a to me, it's a very strong disjuncture. And so I, I found that hard to process. Now I might be wrong. I'm, I might be misreading the book, and and this could be reader error. And I may read it a second time and go, well, I'm an idiot. Um, so 
Um, and, and then the second thing that I'll just say, and it's not really a criticism of the book. I, I, to me, um, you, you compared the book to, to, to Nabokov. And I, and I think that's a really good comparison um, in, that, in that I think Thoreau is this really rhetorically complex writer who's very interested in kind of games, you know, literary games. Every, he's very, com very formally complex. There are all these you know, really interesting formal things that happen in the book. I think that's great. It just happens to not be my kind of book so much, right? Like, it's not like I'm against it, but I'm just, I'm not a, I'm not a huge Nabokov person either. I think Nabokov is great. I think the games and all the complexity in Dark and Mill's Cat, um, most of which I missed, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I, that I, you know, uh, was, was savvy to, to all of those. And that's why I liked Via's review so much is it, is it made me see a lot of the complexity that I had missed. Um, I think, I, I think I'm just less interested in that in that kind of formalism just as a fact so it's it's not that i think it's bad i would just say i don't i think it's a really complex novel um i think it is a novel that is very out of step with the times in 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 various ways as well and i think that's a you know um it's it'll be an interesting thing as it gets more readers which it seems to be getting more readers you know now how that how that's processed as well so yeah yeah it's i think in a way I'm not sure if it is something that people will read now as readily as they would have in the past. I mm. feel like maybe when he wrote it, it would have felt a lot more up to date. Yep. I do feel like it has dated poorly. And I think it's something that I think with, with Nabokov, I think his books have aged a little bit better than, than this yep. particular book. I think that because of his sheer brilliance and because of his subtlety and the complexity of his writing, I think this is a little bit less subtle. I think that the way he treats, uh, especially the, you know, the main female protagonist in the yes. is, uh, I guess in our, in our modern day terms is, is quite, you know, abusive. And yep. I think that it would put off quite a few readers in our I, day and age. I, I, I think that's right. I think there's some things, you know, I, th I, I, I think, Again, to me, it's a really complicated thing because it's hard to say with a book like, you know, I, I didn't find their relationship very compelling in the novel. Mm. And I'm not sure if I'm meant to like, and I, and I mean that seriously, I just, I just don't know. This could be reader error on my part. Maybe I'm, maybe given that the whole thing, you know, disappears, you know, in a, in a kind of a puff of smoke, which is, which is not to ruin the book. Um, you know, maybe that's the point and I just missed it. I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I so, you know, to use the obvious comparison of a book like Lolita, look, we're not meant to like Humbert Humbert, right? It's, it's very clear from the beginning that he's a figure that is not meant to be trusted and is ironized. And whether or not you like Lolita or, you know, think it's problematic or whatever, I, I don't really care. But, but it's very clear that Nabokov is not asking us to like Humbert Humbert. We meet him as a murderer at the beginning of the book. We know that he is a um, difficult person. And I think the status of Darkenville is less clear in Darkenville's cat. I'm still not sure what I'm meant to think of that character. I think I was meant to like him at the beginning and then maybe not meant to like him later, but I don't think I liked him at the beginning. So I just, you know, I just, I, it's, 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 it's one of those things, but, but I, I also accept that I'm misreading the book. I'm very interested to read more of Thoreau. What, what I like about his writing the best, what appeals to me, I'm not saying it's what's best about it, um, is him as a satirist. I think he's an excellent satirist. I think that he is, when he brings that brutal, dehumanizing, critical vision to things, he's so funny on the page. Um, 
he's he's so brutal to the characters and i love brutal satire um and and that's just amazing i lo- i loved that and I, and so i really i really loved the first 300 pages of the book be, because of that and then i think in the second half of the book where you do get this the the ridiculously over the top misogynist dr crucifer mm-hmm. you know that's really funny because it's it's again it's obviously bad like we're obviously you know he is he is a humbert humbert like figure we're not meant to like him that's very clear it's unclear if he's even real as well in the book um you know but that excess is really funny and really good and so i like that stuff that's that stuff that's very much in in my wheelhouse but i think i have questions about the other bit but but again i really want to emphasize I'm, I may have misread the book. I may have I may have simply failed to understand it. It's a complex enough novel that I that I am not willing to discount reader air um, here as the issue. And I, I haven't read Stephen Moore's book about Thoreau, um, and I I look forward to reading that at some point, um, hopefully in the next year, and 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 to getting more perspective on it. I've I've really enjoyed um, Greg Gerke's writing on on Thoreau as well although he writes about an adultery um in his in his um uh, see what i see rather than um rather than dark Eagle's cat um and that's i've got i've got an adultery sitting up on my shelf it's a book that i hope to read um over the next year so well speaking of things to read have you got many things in your to be read pile uh yeah i've got all the things look during um during lockdown over the last year and a half um there was a lot of opportunity of course to uh to uh you know order books uh, money that i might have been spending on on petrol to go to work um could be uh spent on books it's also been um it's been a uniquely unpleasant time for the university sector in australia we've lost forty thousand jobs in it and that's something i work in and it was something that i thought about a lot because um a lot, a lot of people who are academics wrap up a big sense of their identity in their work. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, and it was something that I thought about as other people I knew were losing jobs in the university sector. And, um, you know, I became an academic because I love books. I don't love books because I'm an academic. And I think over the last year and a half, as things have been bad in the university sector, I've really thrown myself back into reading and it's been great to interact with people on Twitter and on other forums just to talk about books because I just, I love books. Um, and I think reading and talking with books about people in those forums was for me a way of kind of going, well, uh, whatever happens, uh, with the university sector here, whatever happens with me, this, this thing that I love will always be, it'll always be a thing I love and always a thing that I care about. So that's been, it's been an exciting thing. What it's resulted in in practice though, is that I've amassed an enormous number of encyclopedic novels, uh, that I hope to read at some point. So I've got, you know, sitting across from me here, I've got, I'll, I'm about to butcher a bunch of names. I've got Miklos and Kuthi's Prey um, by Contramundum Press, which I'm very keen to 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 read. I've read the opening section and it's fantastic and bizarre. Um, I've got uh, Mara Charles Adam Buenaceres, which I have not read and I've heard that's fantastic. That's amazing, yeah. I, I've heard it's great. Um, I really want to read it. I've got the original hardback of Gregor von Rizori's The Death of My Brother Abel, which is since been republished as Cain and Abel. I know you had a chat about that the other week mm. uh, with George Salas on, on your program, so I won't go into that too much. Um, I've got uh, William Least Heat Moon's Prairie Earth, which is a, a, a book I'm, I'm very interested in. That's, that's about a specific kind of spot of land in the, in the US. It's sort of nonfiction. 
Uh, I've got uh, Jergovic's Kin, which has just come out through Archipelago Books. Another, I mean, these are all like 700 to 1,000 yeah. page novels. I've got, let's see, what else do I have here? I've got um, Tom Christensen's Havoc, um, which is a, a Scandinavian encyclopedic novel. Julian Rios's Larva, which I'm very keen to read, and Albert Cohen's um, Belle de Seigneur. Um, so that'll, that'll keep me busy. Oh, and I did recently start, um, William Volman's, uh, The Dying Grass. So another 1300 page novel there. So, you know, whether or not I finished any of those anytime soon, I don't know, but, um, I, I, I've always loved encyclopedic novels. I've written about a lot of them. I've read a lot of them and I just thought, you know, it's kind of been kind of a good opportunity to get some more and try and tackle some of them, but they, they take a while to read. So they do, they definitely do. It's yeah. very exciting. That's a great list of things to read. I'm going to have to buy a few of those. <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Emmett Stinson. Applications are now open for the Curtin University Northern Territory Advanced Acronym Course for 2022. Enroll today. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Emmett's top 10. My, my number one, I think, will be a book that is prob probably not featured uh, previously in this, and it is Wyndham Lewis's novel, The Apes of God. That's my, that's my number one. So I, I, my first three books are all books I wrote about in my, my book, uh, Satirizing Modernism. They are three of my favorite novels. Um, Wyndham Lewis is one of these writers who has had a kind of a comeback, um, in, over the last 20 years. And I think he's, um, even though all his books are currently being, uh, republished at the moment, I think in, in more public spheres, he's sort of dropped off. And there, there are reasons for this. Um, he was by all accounts, a, a thoroughly unpleasant person in all kinds of ways. And I'm, I'm not disputing that. Um, very famously, in 1930, he published a journalistic book about Hitler, but he wasn't very critical of Hitler. So this was in 1930. This was this was you know this was before Hitler was in power, and he'd written the book very quickly. Um, but it is you know it is not a good thing, as it turns out, to write a book about Hitler. That's gonna that's gonna that's gonna affect your reputation. It affected his so heavily that he ended up moving to Canada, um, actually to get away from the UK. He did write two uh, books recanting this um one called the hitler cult uh another book which was very unfortunately titled the jews are they human very offensive title seeming now it was based on a contemporary book at the time called the english are they human it was meant to be a joke and it's actually meant to be a book that's against anti-semitism but it's just it's just the worst possible title. And the other thing is a lot a lot of Lewis's writing is anti-Semitic in ways that cannot be defended at all. So I'm I'm not trying to defend him. You know, um, those are all things that are that are true. He definitely had interests in fascism. Though if you read The Apes of God, which is his 1930 novel, there's a fascist character at the end, the brown shirt, who is a satirized character. Um, there are several things that I love about this book. However, um, it is thoroughly unpleasant to the to contemporary sensibility. I don't mind reading historical novels that are unpleasant to contemporary sensibilities because I don't think we can hold I don't think we can hold writers from different times to account on on present ethics. I don't think that makes sense. Um, I hope that people in the future don't 
do that to us because I think times change and context change. That doesn't mean we can't have strong feelings about ethical decisions now. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Um, or that we can't be critical of people in the past. Um, I like The Apes of God because I think it is a dialogic novel. This is Frederick Jameson's argument about Lewis, that he's a writer who is kind of awful in various ways, but he unleashes these forces that, that are kind of more powerful than Lewis's awfulness. Um, and the, the, the premise of The Apes of God is there's this kind of naif, this, this would-be uh, poet um, running around London named Dan, who's taken under the wing of a guy named Horace Zagrus, who is always, it's apparently pronounced Zagrus, um, who is always, uh, always picking up young male geniuses in London and taking around geniuses in quotation marks. Um, and Zagrus is working at the direction of someone else named Pierpoint. Um, and Pierpoint writes this letter saying that it's, it's basically a satire of Bloomsbury and surrounding people. He says that all of these people are in fact not artists, they're actually apes. And he sends Dan on a journey around London to catalog all the apes of contemporary, um, the contemporary art world in London in the 1930s. So it's this really brutal novel. Um, Wyndham Lewis used this thing he called the external method, um, where he tries not to describe people's interior psychological states. He describes them externally. The prose is bizarre. The book is so strange. The first hundred pages are slow. It takes about a hundred pages to kick in, but then it's really funny. It's really brutal. It's just a bizarre work. Many people have called the book unreadable over the years. Um, it is certainly a challenging read for all the reasons I mentioned, but I think it is, I, th I think what the book does at the end is, is it really raises questions about how we value art in societies um, in, in some really interesting and profound ways. That are that are not simply uh, progressive or or conservative, though. Though Lewis had some of those views, he was also very radical in other ways. My um, my second is um, William Gaddis's *The Recognitions*, um, which is a book that I think is is had quite a renaissance over the last kind of uh, ten to fifteen years. Certainly, um, has been reprinted yet again by um, New York Review of Books. Uh, Dalkey had it and New York Review okay. Books has just, just republished it. Um, so yes, yeah, it's been republished twice. Um, it was with Penguin before that. Um, I love William Gaddis. I love this novel. Um, it's famously a novel about an art forger. It, it just had a terrible review in the London Review of Books. Uh, and I mean terrible in the sense of the, the review is just, it's very bad. It's a very bad review. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a very sensible engagement with, uh, with Gaddis and the claims it makes about Gaddis's work aren't, aren't, aren't very compelling. Um, I think a lot of people misunderstand the recognition. So it's a book that it came out in 1955. Um, it had some high, yep. Yeah, it had some high profile fans. Malcolm Lowry liked it. Um, David Markson became a fan very early before he was famous, but the reviews were bad. Um, and, and Gaddis didn't publish another book for 21 years. In 1963, Jack Green writes the book Fire the Bastards, which is about the, how bad reviews of the book were, how kind of incompetent the reviews of the book were. Um, it's a satire. And satires don't have satisfying narrative plots. They don't move like realist novels. The recognition doesn't move like a realist novel. It doesn't have a realist plot. There isn't really character development in the way that we... Uh, expect it's about an art forger who um he wyatt Gwynn. he 
has an art show in Paris. The critic comes to a critic comes to him ahead of time, asks him to pay money for a favorable review. Wyatt refuses, gets a bad review, and because of this bad experience, he decides to start faking Flemish masterpieces. Um, but actually, it's not. It's it's actually a novel about originality. This would be my argument about it. Like so, yes, forgery is a is a key theme that cycles throughout the whole book. Um, but it's it really is a book about originality. It's particularly a, a book that's I think about for me in my reading of it um, about the problem of writing a modernist novel after modernism. You know, modernism. You know, Ezra Pound famously said, "Make it new," which is itself actually a very old quotation that he was taking from other people. But um, the recognitions um, is asking what what do you do when you're trying to write a how do you make new a modernist novel that's already been exhausted, already been written? How do you do that? after you, you know, after Joyce, after these writers have already done it. And, the, and again, the thing that I love about the book is that um, it's got this wonderful undecidability in it. So you have a character like Max who seems awful in the novel, but if you actually read the novel carefully, all the things that Max is accused of are potentially untrue. All of them are potentially untrue. And Otto, who is a respectable character that we're meant to like, at one point, Max accuses him of plagiarism and of being a plagiarist. And actually he is like he, he claims to not know how it happened, but his work very clearly is a plagiarism of a French writer. Um, so, and, and he is deeply unoriginal and plagiarizes Wyatt and other people. So it's, you know, it's, to me, it's, again, it's this kind of really dialogic book. Um, my third book is Gilbert Sorrentino's Imaginative Qualities of Actual Things, another hilariously brutal satire. This one of the Greenwich Village scene in the fifties and sixties. It's a Ramona Clef, so it's based on real people um, who are readily identifiable. Allegedly, Joel Oppenheimer, who is the uh, inspiration for the character Leo Kaufman in the novel, would not even utter Sorrentino's name after the book was published. That's how angry um, he was. So I guess Gilbert Sorrentino was the original bad art friend, um, except that he was so brutal in the way he did it that he, he burned all the bridges. You know, everyone knew what was happening. Um, <laughs> But the thing that I love about the book is like, so all these characters are readily identifiable, but he keeps insisting throughout the book that they're not based on real people. And then in his subsequent books, he keeps using these same names for these characters, but in completely different ways, as if to sever them from the original reference points. It's just, it's just a brutally funny novel. It's a really, it's a really funny reflection on art. One of my favorite um, bits in the book is he's, he, he's, he ar keeps arguing that fiction is, useless and he says if you met J james joyce on the street and said help me he'd hand you a copy of finnegan's wake you can both cry um which i think is you know um he he's he for him art is not a consolation um my fourth book i'm gonna i'm gonna choose a a very boring um book but it's it's george Eliot's middlemarch um you know marion evans uh she's just was one of the greatest writers of the 19th century. Middlemarch is, is, is a kind of a maximalist novel in some ways. It again has that satirical element. I love the portrait of Cosabon, the scholar, and his pretentious book, uh, The Key to All Mythologies um, in it. And it's, it's just beautifully written. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's a great novel. Um, five for me is Roberto Bolaño's 2666, which in my view is the greatest novel of the 20th century so far. Um, there's so many things that I love about it, but what I like about it best is this Bologna's books are always full of these crazy poetic dreamers. Um, 
But what 2666 does so well is that you get these poetic dreamers, um, particularly these these critics who are trying to find the writer Archimboldi. It's this big you know mystery about who is he um, and wh why has he been in this town that's in fact Ciudad Juarez in in Mexico. Um, and it starts out with this literary mystery and these kind of you know crazy idealists, but then the novel gives us the brutal reality of the murders of hundreds of women, unsolved murders of hundreds of women in Ciudad Juarez. In the in the famous section, the part about the crimes, it's it's brutal and it's so it um, and unrelenting. It's a very hard to read section, and so you know what I like about it is it is it brings Bologna's dreamers into contact with this very brutal reality. Um, and kind of the trick of the book is the book does ultimately answer the question of who Archimboldi is. We finally learn all that, you know, by the end of the book. But at the point that we've answered that mystery, we have this bigger mystery of the murders of these women, which are, of course, you know, linked to the drug cartels and, and other things that are happening in Juarez. And, that, and that's an irresolvable mystery in the book. There is, there is no answer to that. Um, and I think it's, you know, within the structure of the plot, it's very profound. We're, we're, we have this misdirection where we're, you know, meant to care about one thing and actually something else um, sort of pops up. So I, lo I love that novel. I love it to me because it's it's a novel that synthesizes the art novel tradition with with the social realist novel. It kind of resolves them in this, I think, fantastic way. Um, number six for me is Gerald Renane's A Million Windows. I, I love all of Gerald Renane's writing. I could really have chosen any of his books um, as, a, as a favorite. Um, a Million Windows is a novel from 2014 that's really a book about writing books. It, it's a, it, it takes uh, its title from Henry James um, and, and the idea of, of, you know, of writing a novel and, and sort of makes that material. And it's just funny and crazy and weird. And one of the things I love about Renane in his work is that he always kind of says, oh, I'm, I'm a very literal thinker, or maybe I'm a very naive writer, but he doesn't let us take anything for granted. He refuses to take concepts for granted. He'll say things in his books like, you know, I, I would you know, teach writing classes or I would go to, you know, class and people would talk about a literary character. What's a character? What is a character? I don't know what a character is. And he kind of refuses to take um, these things at face value. Um, and his books are also very funny, which is a thing that people often don't notice. They're actually really, really funny books, um, and it's easy to miss. Seven for me is um, Juno Barnes' Nightwood, uh, a modernist novel. I've, I've read it, I think, four or five times. It's very short. It's 150 pages, and I, and I still struggle to summarize the book. So much happens in those 150 pages. Uh, it's really complex. The writing is beautiful, baroque, these really long sentences. It has these fabulous characters. The, the doctor in particular is just one of my favorite characters in literature, just a, a wonderful and real, but totally over the top and fantastic, um, just fantastic character. Love, love that novel. Um, eight is Jen Craig's Panthers and the Museum of Fire, um, which I mentioned uh, earlier and has become a favorite. That's a book. The name refers to a sign um, on the freeway in Sydney referring to a club, Panthers in a Museum, the Museum of Fire, but it's a book about a character who receives a manuscript from a dead acquaintance called Panthers in the Museum of Fire. And it's about her reading that book and thinking about her own life and her own idea of making art as she reads this book by her dead acquaintance. And it's a bad book as well. That's the other crucial thing. It's a bad book. 
Um, but it's a, it's a fantastic novel. It moves through time and space in these fantastic ways. Um, and it holds so many ideas in a, in a kind of complex tension. Um, next is number nine is Evan Dora's The Last Scrapbook. This is actually, if I had to choose my personal favorite novel of the 1990s, I wouldn't choose Underworld or Infinite Jest or, you know, any number of books by Toni Morrison or, um, you know, or, uh, or, um, Mason and Dixon. I, I would choose Evan Dora's The Last Scrapbook. I think it's just a phenomenal novel. The, tr the thing that it does, um, formally, that's so cool is that it, it's made of all these, it's a montage of all these different scenes. It's one of these books that teaches you how to read it. Um, but the scenes actually switch mid-sentence. So you're reading a sentence and then midway through the sentence, you start to realize you're in a completely different, you're in a completely different character, completely different situation. Um, and I just think it's a fantastic trick. And for the first two thirds of the book, you don't know why, how these scenes are related. They're all interesting. There are some bizarre scenes. One of my favorite scenes in the novel is uh, a character that picks up a radio station through his Walkman headphones, a, a tape-recorded uh, Walkman, which is very bizarre, and someone is speaking to him through those. Um, but in the, in the final third of the novel, you start to see how all these stories are linked and what brings them together. And there's a quite beautiful bit at the end where all these different voices start speaking in unison. And it's a really fantastic imagining of community in a formal way. Um, love it. And then my 10th book, another, uh, another book that um, I think doesn't have many contemporary readers because there are some quite unpleasant aspects of it um, for good reason. Uh, but I love Andre Gide's The Counterfeiters. Um, Gide is a novelist that was a major writer in the first half of the 20th century. He was important as any of the famous European writers we think about now in terms of his influence. Um, but he's dropped out of consciousness for good reasons in some ways um because of questions about him as a person um but the counterfeiters is it is a great novel um in my view one of the things that i like about it the best is it has a character in it who um who has a manifesto for his idea of the novel which is called the pure novel um and it's it's kind of the precursor of seinfeld's show about nothing the pure novel is going to have nothing in it um, he says that the pure novel will have no outward events, accidents, or traumatisms. It shouldn't have dialogue. It shouldn't have characters. It, it, um, it, you know, the, the business of the pure novel is, is, you know, just, you know, not to have any of the, uh, historical elements of the novel. Um, the counterfeiters of course has all the, all the things in it that the pure novel isn't meant to do. So it's, it's ironized. It, but I love that. So those, that's my top 10. It's a really interesting list. Lots of things I've never had in a list like this before. Uh, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can get in touch with you and read your reviews and things like that? Sure. Uh, look, I'm 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 very involved in in book Twitter, so you can you can definitely uh, find me uh, on on Twitter, um, and I I write for a lot of different things um yeah um so yeah I'm, I'm i'm around i'm in i'm in google there aren't too many emmett stinsons so you can you can find me that way you know all right well thank you very much it's been great speaking with you thanks for your time really appreciate it and, and, and it's a, a pleasure to come on because i'm i'm actually quite a fan of the uh the podcast as well the interviews are, are great and i've i've been yeah listening to them for for a bit now so i'm, I'm impressed by how how much you've managed to do in such a comparatively short period of time. It's pretty amazing. 
<laughs> well, thanks a lot. Pleasure to speak with you. Yep, lovely to speak to you. Thanks once again to Emmett Stinson. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.